It worked, motherfuckers. Yay, fantastic. I'm this is so very exciting. pleased. This is our first time with three microphones. Oh, yeah. We're a little self-conscious. Oh, then you've come to the right person. <laughs> I'm self-conscious about everything. <laughs> Just like withered and trembling <laughs> podcast. It's true. This is an accurate description of both my insides and my outsides. Same. Hashtag relatable. <laughs> again, like I love romance all over again in meeting you in person. <laughs> Reminded of why this is the best genre ever. It really is. Do you want to refresh your mimosa before we get this? Stuff? I was going to say, oh, yeah, yeah, yes. it's like everybody needs Here. one. Allow me to serve you. Oh yeah, here we go. Knowing me, I'll spill it everywhere. It's I okay. mean, we're both technically guests in this household. <laughs> I don't believe in guest <laughs> culture. As soon as you're in my home, you're family. So like, it's you've... like Olive Garden. That way. <laughs> 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 oh my god, Isabel, did you think you invented that? Were you like, I'm gonna say something profound and brilliant? And then you were gonna be profound, you family. asshole. So y'all are just shitting all over my date when I was 15, but like, it's cool. I did feel like family. Oh my god. Awkward family on my first date. Avondale is home to the only Olive Garden within Chicago City limits. Wow. Wow. I Worth the field trip. Haven't had those breadsticks in a decade. It's mm. like a really bad place to live because I'm like a block away from the original Kuma's Corner and I live within like two minutes drive of the only Olive Garden in the city. I know what we're doing after the podcast. <laughs> Unlimited soup and salad and breadsticks. Can't recommend their new menu options. I haven't actually seen their menu and I don't know how long. I made a hardcore left turn for Macaroni Grill. From Macaroni Grill or two? two. two Olive Garden. Grill. That's like, you know, two. that's a step up. That's yeah, I a, think that certainly was. Yeah. That's yeah. Great. yeah, well, congratulations. Thank you. On your new lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know Macaroni Grill's slogan. They can write backwards. their names upside down. Yeah, that's backwards. a skill set, man. Backwards and heels. <laughs> macaroni grill. Macaroni grill. Backwards and upside down. Are we still talking about macaroni grill or like sexual positions? <laughs> <laughs> also, their menu items work both ways. It's like you want that pasta primavera? No. Okay. Okay. Ready? Isabel. And I'm Morgan. And this is Womance, a podcast about romance novels, medieval China, uh, courtesans, constables. I really said courtesans like the most Midwest way possible. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. That's right. Be who you are. Jade. Murder. Murder. Most foul. <laughs> but mostly about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. This week, we are talking about The Jade Temptress by Jeannie Lin, and we are joined by a very special guest. Hi, I'm Suleika Snyder. I write contemporary romance and erotic romance, and I love fangirling other people's books, which is why I'm so glad to be here talking about Jeannie Lin. (laughs) Yeah, why'd you pick this one for your appearance? I think Jeannie Lin is honestly one of the most underrated historical romance authors working today. She's brilliant. Her category length Harlequin historicals are some of the best historical romances I have ever read. Jade Temptress is, I think, single title length, but it was unfortunately only released in ebook, which I'm sorry, it deserved to be on physical shelves too. It's brilliant. It and its predecessor, The Lotus Palace. They're mysteries and romances. They are definitely romance novels, but there are strong mystery elements to both. And she's just amazing. I get it. 
Like this is my first <laughs> Jeannie Lynn and it certainly won't be my last. I one clicked the Lotus Palace immediately upon finishing this one. This was wonderful. Thank you for bringing it to our attention. Like I've read so much about the Lotus Palace. <laughs> Everyone recommends it. I had no idea that the Jade Temptress even existed. And I actually got asked on Instagram or Twitter. I can't remember where. Someone was like, what murder mystery romance would you recommend? And I was immediately like, I have to act like I didn't see this because I have no idea. <laughs> and now I have a recommendation because I can recommend murder books, but I don't know about any like good murder mystery romance novels. We read Montana Sky by Nora Roberts. Oh, yeah. Um, no. No. It's just <laughs> hardcore violence and murder. But yeah, that's what I like about both Lotus Palace and Jade Chumpress is that they are murder mystery romances and they stand alone, but it definitely helps if you read them both because you fall in love with the entire cast. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So who should do the plot summary? I think our guest should do the yeah! plot summary. Ah. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, caveat. I'm pretty sure none of us speak Chinese, so we're going to mess up these names. Yes. yes. And I apologize for that. We're just going to go with how they were spelled. In this particular book, courtesan Mingyu, she's like the most coveted and beautiful, famous courtesan at the Lotus Palace, which is a pleasure house in the Pinkang Li, which is the pleasure quarter of uh, this particular city. And her patron, her most valuable patron, General Deng, gets murdered. And her first instinct is to call Constable Wu Kaifeng. Kaifeng is his first name. But of course, in Chinese, the last name comes first. So um, she and Wu Kaifeng have a history, a fraught history, because he arrested her the year before. So there's a bit of tension there. But when General Deng turns up dead, she calls him and then they get embroiled in this mystery and they must fight their attraction while doing so. That was really good. Exactly right. And then they fall in love. And, and they fall in love. <laughs> yes. And they overcome obstacles and find out what happened. And find out what happened. It's great. The it's whole thing so is good. Mystery. It's uh, so great. The pacing of mm-hmm. this novel is just so good. It's like, I meet the red herring and I'm like, oh, I know you're bad, but I don't know how bad you are yet. And then it's like something else happens and something else. And I'm like, this book is an honest to God page turner. It is. It yeah. works well as like a murder mystery. It's yeah. like as page turning is like double indemnity where you're like, I was actually surprised by the ending. And I as was to I. be like very callous <laughs> and tend to be like spotted it. Next. And this one I was like, what? It's okay. Because I was rereading it yesterday to refresh my memory and I was finishing it last night. And the same thing happened where we got to the end and we found out the the ultimate twist Mm -hmm. as to what had happened. And I was like, ooh, damn. And just, I was thrilled all over again, even though I've read the book before, because it is that good. Yeah, everything about it, the character pacing is so good. The way that like each character is then introduced and then like reintroduced and like none of the exposition felt clunky, especially because like all of the exposition then is in service to like a broader murder mystery, broader romance, broader murder mystery it's like an incredible nesting doll of stories every single puzzle piece drops into place perfectly from like the first chapter all the way to the end yeah and I just I adore it and the romantic tension my goodness like (laughs) there is so much longing and so much pining and like he shouldn't and she shouldn't but they are and oh no there were so many little heartbeat moments when she's like tell me something besides murder and she's about to leave and he's like I knew you'd be there right (laughs) 
so good though. And then oh, she like, that was so that was good. so good. I know. And it's just like he just turns away and she leaves smiling. And I'm like, that is how you build the feelings of what it is to like first fall in love with someone. Yes. Where it's like, that's so right though. And they're both so awkward about it. Like she is such an accomplished courtesan and knows how to play men. But really, when it comes to falling in love with Kai Feng, she really doesn't know what she's doing. Yeah. And similarly, he's a completely competent detective. He's mm-hmm. a total badass. But when it comes to falling in love again, doesn't know what he's doing. Is completely over his head. Yeah. yeah. And I love it because they're both resisting it, but falling for it at the same time. In a lot of Western historicals, especially, it's all very, very rich people, very mm-hmm. dukes and whatever, and nobility. And they're both working class. Mm-hmm. And she's a sex worker. Mm-hmm. And she's a sex worker who gets a happy ending. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that is so important mm-hmm. and vital. And Jeannie Lynn doesn't shy away from the difficulties there either. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that she has to buy her way out of her contract with her madam. Yeah. You know, and things like that. For such like a book full of like exciting genre pieces, like it's very noir-y, like our hero is like a classic hard-boiled detective, yes. no nonsense direct guy. And she's like a very classic idea of a femme, femme fatale. fatale. And it's also got this like wonderful romance pulled through that's so like lush. But this book at its like base level spoke to something incredibly boring to most people, which is labor and work. Yes. <laughs> yes. Right? <laughs> what it means to labor and work, yeah. especially on like a within an emotional sphere yes. such as sexuality and murder. Yeah. That was catnip to me. Yeah. yeah. And just like the way that it dealt with work and like how it is to be like the difference between a wage earner versus like Kai Feng's boss but also his friend yeah Yeah. Lian and he's like I don't know what that's like really Um, (laughs) you know it's like (laughs) I guess guess. it's like is it hard and like how much money Kai Feng has to save to buy this tea house and like every penny and he's like sleeping in this like really barren apartment so that he can afford this tea house in the burned out district and like the struggle of wage work was just so embodied and like so good and I think the ending where they go from like being a sex worker and a cop to the most anxiety inducing job in the world which is owning a restaurant is yes. also like, <laughs> I mean I know there's striking. a lot of people who'd be like a sex worker and cop who go to own a restaurant I don't want to read about this because it sounds depressing and I just want billionaires but you know who don't have to worry about like the day to day struggle yeah but to me like I relate to people in the day to day struggle finding happiness because I feel like for me that's what I want to hear I want to know that those of us who are toiling to pay our rent also get to be happy even if it's hard even yeah. if we are going through a hard win at the end there yeah. you know and trying to plant the seeds in the tea house garden and, and spoiler alert they do end up happily ever after because it's a romance yeah but it's not an easy happy ever after and, and it's in and the I, epilogue it's in the epilogue yeah. Yeah. that it's like they start counting their pennies that winter and I was like what epilogue am I reading it's like a real departure <laughs> it is but it was also sweet and peaceful and they kind of end spoiler alert I think they're just like sitting there in the garden while she plays an instrument he bought her mm-hmm. and with like her head on his shoulder I think and after every everything they've been through mm-hmm. it is such a gentle hopeful ending yeah yeah and i really appreciate that too like we don't need a bombastic huge they're allowed to rest and have some peace yeah, yeah. Th- they have this kind of like beautiful ending of like getting by mm-hmm. yeah which is not something they've been doing up to this point even though she lived pretty luxuriously yeah. the idea of 
like freedom, which is also really yes, interesting. Right? Fascinating. Because Security isn't freedom. Right. Security, Security isn't, isn't freedom. freedom. And it poses this really important question for women, mm-hmm. which is we're a lot of times nowadays it's lionized the idea that you can like work and be a mother and be a yes. wife. And then it's right. also a private fantasy to like not have to work because work is toil in right. this particular sense. I would like to not have my job, but <laughs> <laughs> I would yes. like to not have to have my job. But the idea that her madam keeps impressing upon her, like you're more free here than you would ever be as a wife. And like she goes to see her sister and her day is now filled with like embroidery and yeah. stuff. It does have this like tenuous relationship with the idea of not working and that kind of typical historical romance ending where she becomes a duchess and right. all of her problems are solved. Right. I thought it was fascinating when Madam's son was like, you'll never be more free than you are here. And then we immediately go to sister who is like really restricted. Like she can only really be in the private sphere of the house in the mansion. And like she doesn't get to go to the tavern. She doesn't get to go to the pleasure quarter anymore. But like the happiness of like not having to toil is suddenly freedom where it's like she has the time to call her own to learn to embroider and to do this. So like the way that this book is like weaving itself through really conflicting feelings. Absolutely. And I think reading The Lotus Palace helps too because Yu Yang's life was really difficult. It's because she has like a wine stain She has a wine stain on her face and she worked in a much lower class brothels, a lot less high class sex work. So she had a much harder life than her sister. So for her, it is nice to be protected in that way. Mm -hmm. She doesn't have to do those things anymore. Embroidery for her is probably like a nice break from being a servant. She also ends up being a servant in the Lotus Palace because her sister buys her away from those lower class brothels. Mm -hmm. But then she's still working as a servant in the Lotus Palace because she's not pretty enough to be a high class courtesan. And that's how we meet her in the first book. And we meet Ming Yu as well. Yes, on the one hand, her life is a lot more restricted as the wife of an official. Was it lower collector of archives? Assistant. <laughs> the assistant. <laughs> the assistant, yes, or whatever his title was. I mean, their story is also a journey about class and navigating because he is from a high class family and she's, again, a servant in a pleasure house. So I think Jeannie Lin has a lot to say about class and mm-hmm. restrictions and expectations for women in both books. Mm-hmm. Even if you look at General Deng's wife, who... Uh, does yeah. what she needs to do to protect her son and her family name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and again, she's a wife with no power. But she, like would have all of the power over Ming Yu. And that's yes. why Ming Yu is like, I'm never going to take the security that General Deng is offering because the strings that come with it yes. would be too binding. Like, right. I'm not going to be under Lady Feng's thumb. And right. it's described in the book as a choice between like selling your time and selling your person. Yes. Yeah. I also love the fact that in this text, because I haven't read mm-hmm. The Lotus Palace, but Ming Yu is kind of skeptical and kind of eye-rolly about her sister embroidering right. and then being mm-hmm. like, well, I bet this is really nice for her. Yes. And like exactly. kind of has the awareness yes. of their social ranking just based on like appearance yes. and like how their lives have been up to that yes. point. I want to say she has another short story about Weiwei, the sister, mm-hmm. who's also chafing against expectations and, you know, obviously doesn't like being restricted. It's a story called The Liar's Dice and there was supposed to be a second part and I don't know if she's written the second part yet. But again, it kind of explores these women in these situations chafing against expectations. 
fashion yeah and, and just god she's amazing she is amazing and like this is one of the first times that like i felt like there was judgment through ming yu's characterization mm-hmm. of like what other women were doing yes. but like i didn't feel like the third person narrative of the text was necessarily judging no, it in the same right. way it's like this is one of the first romances especially historical romances in a long time where it's like women were not treated as a monolith and like their emotions were nuanced yeah, yeah. and like that was so <clears throat> deliciously refreshing where yeah. it's like i had forgotten that like especially her madam is so complicated because she's like i've loved you like a daughter and it's like ooh, ownership isn't the exact relationship between mom and daughter and certainly shouldn't be but like inside the confines of the pleasure district like it made sense that madam's son would be like i did want you to inherit this business from me and like protect other girls and like that was fascinating there is this idea like this understanding that madam's son she's not going to actually understand what it's like to have a daughter because all of her relationships with these women have been transactional but to the best of her understanding this is what love is right and I love that scene where they're preparing to get their nails done Mm -hmm. and she starts lecturing Mingyu about how this other girl who's in the same room was jilted by a scholar and that girl is like starts grinding the rose (laughs) really hard (laughs) and like Madam Sun is like so oblivious right which is like so true about like any workplace right <laughs> just being like oblivious and grating. There's so much to connect with, I think, work-wise in this book. Yeah. At least I thought so. I definitely. I mean, there's so many different layers of it to connect to and relate to. Like every time I read it, I find something new to think about or talk about. And now I want to go back and reverse and reread The Lotus Palace as well. Yeah. <laughs> I am curious about the happily ever after and whether our heroine ends up truly free or if she just decides that this is the type of person to give her personhood to as opposed to her time you know I don't know but isn't that a question we can kind of ask about any romance inherently yeah right (laughs) like even if she's a duchess or whatever like that's a title that's great but how much autonomy is she really gonna have as a duchess to do anything I think it's just about sharing your life with somebody as well as you can despite the confines of class and your time and gender expectations like is this a too realistic a happily ever after in this particular case yeah because they're you know it's not a hyper fantasy he doesn't suddenly win the Tang Dynasty equivalent of the lottery and they're suddenly both rich <laughs> you know <laughs> like that doesn't happen like they both have to still fight for their everyday existence but they love each other and they have each other's backs and I think the word that you used is share and I think like that's the key component right where like sharing isn't transactional as such and so like then sharing your life in that way it's like you're pulling in harness like she's gonna be as important to the tea house success as he is and like that's the life they're building together yeah I love that ending especially when he's like yeah if the tea house doesn't work like we won't be able to eat in a month so like work on that <laughs> work on that I know he's like you better your skills you better sharpen your skills I know I was like that's so good though his humor really grows on you it does it does and like her ability to sort of tease it out of him it does hit some like really good comedic timing pieces yes. with his dialogue that's pretty interesting the idea of sharing a life mm-hmm. is something that like I understand and I consider in my own existence mm-hmm. but it's also something I'm like immediately skeptical of because gender parity doesn't exist right. and so how much sharing can actually happen if the tea house fails not that this is like at all in the text mm-hmm. but 
if the tea house fails, who's going to get the raw end of that deal? Honestly, probably him. Because she is the famous one in that pairing. I mean, she still has a reputation. She had more social power than capital, he did. Yeah. More social capital. She was basically marrying down. Right. Mm-hmm. And plus, she also has a sister who's married to a high-level noble. That's true. So I think she would be okay somehow. And we did get the acknowledgement from his family that she is a part family. of that family. Right. Yeah, the building of the network of like the safety net that neither of them had, like she didn't have as a sex worker and Mm -hmm. he didn't have as like a know-nothing peasant constable, Mm -hmm. suddenly covers the bare ground of the abyss. Yeah. And like in that sense, like even if the tea house fails, like they'll make a go of it. I think so. And and I think part of that is also when we see that her brother-in-law takes Kaifeng in, he gets arrested and beaten like for like three days straight, like tortured. And her brother-in-law takes him in. And so I think that's another example of like Kaifeng, he's an orphan. He doesn't have a family and that's actually helped shape his attitude and what a loner he is and how he only hyper focuses on his job. The fact that they physically take him into their house to me is another sign that like you've got people now. Mm-hmm. And even Lee Yen, his boss, who he kind of didn't even realize was his friend until mm-hmm. the guy's like, you know I'm your friend, right? And he's like, really? Oh, I, I guess you're my friend too. <laughs> like it takes him a lot to actually say you are my friend as well. So I think those things, when these people stand up for him, that's another safety net they have. Mm-hmm. Like I don't think he considered that people had his back ever. Mm-hmm. And his boss has his back and his brother-in-law. These people have them and yeah. will take care of them. I think both of them are so used to taking care of themselves that even if the tea house fails, other people will take care of them. At least I want to believe that. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, the community building of this and like watching someone who had to be so self-reliant, almost to the point of like being myopic about it, not yeah. being able to acknowledge or even feel that others care for him and yeah. like mm-hmm. being confused by that was fascinating. And it's like, like his life wasn't sad to him right. until someone's like, you sleep alone in a dark room with no furniture. <laughs> right. Yeah, And I was like, well, now that you pointed out, that does seem strange and sad. Didn't his apartment just sound like most apartments? <laughs> like it's just like a mattress on the floor. That's like a that's like your average New York studio right there. Yeah, yeah, and like a desk where he writes bad poetry and like makes pretty drawings. Yeah, no, he has terrible handwriting. Yeah. He has no artistic skill, as, as yeah. they say, because that's valued. It's almost like the more of a dilettante you are, the more you're valued in this particular society. So the fact that he's working class, his skin is bronzed mm-hmm. from being out in the sun. Yeah, I love that historical detail and like the move of like being tan you're a farm laborer you're low class but now being tan means that you spent like a week in Barbados and oh it's like, right yeah well, that's fascinating how that move happened now tan means leisure right. rather than labor right that was Coco Chanel's move yeah <laughs> she grew up as a laborer and that's why she was tan but she like created the like mythology that it's because she was on vacation yeah <laughs> and then she supported the Nazis <laughs> yeah, yeah, people always <laughs> forget I, that I was gonna say like, as did Hugo Boss I didn't know until very recently that Hugo Boss designed the SS uniforms because he failed in London and like couldn't sell his stuff and then like the Third Reich was rising and he's like you know what they need fashion direction snazzy uniforms that'll (laughs) make it all better Volkswagen designed created the vans yeah they sure did people's car everybody's terrible (laughs) hands are unclean your faves are all problematic (laughs) it's true sometimes Nazis sometimes in the Nazi way you'd be surprised how many are Nazis lots of Nazis so many Nazis Nazis. there are no Nazis in Jeannie Lynn's 
date temptress because it predates them. So, yeah. which is so nice. <laughs> there is something like, oh my gosh, I know yeah. that yeah. the function of a historical isn't to like take us back in time. And we've been reading these historicals from the 90s that mm-hmm. are very much like, here's a series of facts that you can keep in your back pocket <laughs> right. about this era. But this was like truly like I was transported mm-hmm. by the really elegant backgrounding that mm-hmm. Jeannie Lynn did mm-hmm. in the book and like really created like a world mm-hmm. in this very small community that yes. was clear and easy to imagine. And she just did a, a beautiful job yeah, of using a historical romance to like its fullest Yeah, it's immersive extent. without being didactic. Exactly. Yes. You know, you're learning a lot about that era and the way class, obviously we learned a lot about class, you mm-hmm. know, reading this book, class and women's work and sex mm-hmm. work, but it didn't feel like we were being taught. Right? Yeah. You know. <laughs> it's just a real pleasure to read. And like, I think part of the details is like the macro details of like this particular dynasty and this particular emperor and like this particular warlord. What made it work, like the hinges that the macro details turn on is like the micro details. It's yes. like this silk robe attaches here with this toggle and like, you know, yeah. the rose petals and like how long you have to sit with it on your hands to dye your fingernails. And like those kinds of tactile world building details were just like part and parcel and like part of the course. It was so good. Yeah. yeah. Oh, the poisons too. There was a lot of nice detail about poisons. Oh yeah. And medicines. <laughs> and medicines. Like, yeah. You know, I don't want to sound like I'm knocking Western England set historicals. I read plenty of those. I really do. We all read we plenty all of do. those. I love we those. Can't... I love me some Lisa Klepus and Meredith Duran and Sarah McLean and Courtney Milan and Joanna Bourne. Okay. I'm going to stop listing people. <laughs> <laughs> you get my dress. I'm not trying to knock. I'm not trying to knock what's set in the West. I just think it's so wonderful wonderful and refreshing to have authors like Jeannie out and I don't want to pressure her because I don't I wouldn't want someone telling me to write more because that would pain me but please Jeannie write some more historical soon I love you yeah yeah it wasn't until because I've been reading romance for a really long time but it wasn't until I got into the romance community that I even heard of Jeannie Lynn so then it's like how is a writer of this caliber who's writing this kind of fully fleshed story these kinds of beautiful murder mysteries like how is is she not more mainstream? Right? Yeah. It shocks me because her debut, Butterfly Swords, which was the Harlequin historical, shorter in length than the Jade Temptress in the Lotus Palace, was brilliant. And people were definitely talking about her at that time. Mm-hmm. And she has another series, the Gunpowder Alchemy series, mm-hmm. which is more of a steampunk, again, Eastern set, historical steampunk, brilliant. But um, yeah, I don't know why she didn't make a bigger slash. And I, I th- wonder why. I, I can't her? Kawite. I can't <laughs> Put my finger on it. <laughs> <laughs> that, I don't know if that works as well on a podcast as it does when I type the word out. Quite. <laughs> Quite. Quite. Yeah. Crap. I wonder why. This did make it's a 53%. <laughs> yeah. Quite. Because, I don't know, I guess people would, again, rather go back to reading the Regency Ballrooms because that's safe and they can quote unquote relate to that. <laughs> fucking you relate to a <laughs> ballroom and not like working right I can't relate to some lady in a ballroom I'm sorry but I can definitely relate to like a constable working the beat like, he just like wants oh to figure God. out the details <laughs> just wants to put it together just wants I to can, be competent I, I can relate to having to save up money to buy your dream business yeah <laughs> and not being able to afford 
to rent. I totally like, I don't know. And like to have a kind of knowledge and opinion of yourself and like how you're perceived. And like, this was such a heartbreak when everyone's like, oh, you killed this guy who accused your stepfather Mm -hmm. of murder. It isn't until like the last like 15 pages. He's like, I just want you to know that I didn't do that. Right. And I was like, to let people believe something ugly about yourself because you don't think that A, you'll be believed or like B, that it'll even matter. Right. I was like, oh. Right? So heartbreaking. See, as I said, we're finding more and more to talk about about this one book and her entire catalog is so rich and so brilliant. Everyone go out and buy all of her books right now. Yeah, and libraries start stocking them. Right? I do want to talk about something that I think is also interesting Mm -hmm. to everything but also critical to the book and that's the villain. Yes. Shiloon. Who is also a working class Mm -hmm. kid but who kind of made good air Mm -hmm. quotes and is now like in a government position Mm -hmm. and is a scholar and has made all these choices to get to that point but is kind of the through the mirror darkly version of our hero. Yes. Mm -hmm. He's like very prideful and scary but also so very real. So very real. And so very much like every other guy you meet at a bar. Absolutely. Who thinks he's entitled to your time and your attention and brags about himself and like the cars he drives and the guy that shows you motorcycle pictures on the Tinder date. I'm not saying that happened to me but it totally did. (laughs) And you're like I don't care about your motorcycles or your fancy car or how much money you make. I'm not a thing you can add to your collection. Yeah. 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 Like he's always just not quite of the class. Right. Like he's always like a little bit too intense. Yeah. And I love the fact that she essentially defeats him via flaming him. Yeah. (laughs) By collecting the couplets that other scholars have written about him behind his back. Right. She she destroys him with his own pride. Yeah. And she does that. The hero doesn't have to do that for her. Yeah. She, she uses her own skills, her own social capital to wreck this particular villain. And I love that. I loved it too. I also loved that it's like basically a treatise on like the gift of fear where it's like there's a lot of like the hairs on the back of her neck stood up and then like he'd say something and she's like, it didn't sound wrong. Like the words weren't yeah. wrong, but the inflection was yes. off. And like all of this where it's like, yeah, girl, trust your instincts. Like he's not a good guy. Don't go home with this no. one. And like to have what are essentially like the instincts stinks of like this situation doesn't feel good I can't exactly put my finger on it but like I know that this isn't good yeah and to have it written so clearly in that way was fascinating to yes. me and the fact of the historical time and place of the novel and her job makes it impossible for her to just like blow him off right which anyone who's like worked as a server yep or a bartender yep. can yep. completely relate to that and understand it totally this idea of like work and women's work is yep. really resonant whenever Mingyu meets with Deng Furin and she asks her, are you pregnant? Right. And Mingyu's like, no, I haven't slept with him in a year, so no chance of that. And Deng Furin says, isn't this awful that this is the way we secure ourselves via our own flesh and blood? And it's true for both women Mm -hmm. in very different ways, but it's so much a part of, I think physicality is so much a part of every woman's work because it's so much a part of every woman's worth and how we project ourselves. I was looking at my company handbook at the dress code because mm-hmm. it's summer now. And I was like, none of this applies to anyone but like me totally. and the other right. women who work here. And like it's policing of our bodies.
bodies, yeah. even though I would say physical labor has very little to do with what I am called upon. But like it doesn't. And you're right, because like women are always already on offer as like yeah. visible physical yep. beings. Where it's, it's always about physicality. Right. And like your smile has a transactional value, whether or not that value that you're securing is like safety. Yeah. We think about like sex work as kind of the extreme of women's work in a physical sense. Mm-hmm. And then being a housewife or a stay-at-home mom as being this other extreme. But they're both operating on the same level. And if that's the case, then like it is easy to understand everything in the middle yes. is also functioning on that, your own flesh and blood. Yeah. And how that capital is realized by others and like how it's valued. And like that was one of the things where it's like the time versus person. Mm-hmm. And like the fact that she freely gives of both her person and time then to Kai Fang when she shows up knowing that she's about to be purchased by like, our villain. And that sex scene is so sad and like it's underlying super duper sad, but also like kind of crazy. Like this is me. I belong to myself. I'll give myself into this like pleasure of yeah. you tonight before I no longer belong to myself. Yeah. And like that move and like he sees it as sad and he's like, you're using me right. to feel yourself. Yeah. And I'm going to let you because I want you, but also like I'm, I'm going like, to call it out. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to point out that this is what you're doing. Yeah. yeah. You know. But how remarkable to have a sex scene that isn't about the hero. Oh, in yeah. Some way. Yes. Oh. So true. That feels like a natural transition into an important question. Yeah. What was the sexiest part of this book? Oh, gosh. I don't know. For me, the sex scenes weren't necessarily the sexiest. It was like just the way they looked at each other and just the small touches, like even just them drinking lotus leaf wine on the roof during General Deng's funeral to me was incredibly sexy. I mean, that's their first kiss. Yeah. It ends yeah. with their first kiss. Because to Ming Yu, sex is a transaction for the most part. Yeah. So the other intimacies she shares with Kai Feng to me are the sexiest parts of the book Mm -hmm. because it's both of them learning emotional intimacy. I think that's a really good point because sex is freighted with this other thing for Mingyu and has been for her entire career with sex. That it's like peeling through the sex scenes in the book. It's kind of peeling away that way that sex can function. Yeah, but also in a way that like this book isn't interested in ever like the disassociation of like sex versus intimacy is really clear and really fascinating but like it's not demeaning sex work in other ways that I've seen romance novels do it's like doesn't find it repugnant it's like this is something that people do and like there's this incredible scene when she's talking about how she's not sad that General Dang is dead and like the first time that she has sex with him he's not violent it's nothing like that it's like this transaction but he like has his hand at her throat Mm -hmm. where it's like this could be pleasure this could be death and I was like that's crazy but also so smart in like the disassociation of what sex work is versus like intimacy yeah. is mm-hmm. what was the sexiest part for you Isabel I guess when he went down on her which is like in part <laughs> and parcel of the first sex scene but it's like the second or third time they're having sex that night and it's like right before dawn and he's like I'm just gonna give this to you and like <laughs> send you on your way and I just give you this pleasure I'm like mm-hmm. yeah you do that you hook her knee over your shoulder. Oh, a lot thing. of hook in the knees. A lot of hook in the knees. She does like that for <laughs> hook in the knee. It repeated several times. <laughs> I mean, it's visual. No, I get it. it. always over the same joint. No, it's no. like sometimes it's over shoulders. Over yeah, it's like, yeah. you know, just hooking her knee over. You know, he's got to get where he's going. 
going, okay? <laughs> All right, everybody, bring it in, hook a knee. Hook a knee. Clear hearts, hook a knee. Forget taking a knee, just hook it. Hook a knee. What was your sexiest part, Morgan? I think we all got little pitter patters whenever he was like, I know you regularly come to your sister's house on Wednesdays or whatever. (laughs) I think the sexiest sex part was when they have sex at her sister's house after he's Mm -hmm. beaten. Obviously, that's interesting. Yeah. Having sex in abnormal hotel-like space. (laughs) Right. But also the idea that he was like really badly beaten. Mm -hmm. I was kind of worried it was going to be this kind of cloying Mm -hmm. tenderness. But she didn't have to take care of him throughout it. He kind of was like, oh, I'm fine with hurting in order to make this happen and did not put the like care prerogative onto um, her yeah. which is probably like a weird insight into my personal life <laughs> I was very excited by that I think that well speaking of that I think there was also a scene where he like ties her hands above her head briefly yep. and I was mm-hmm. like yeah I'm super into that yeah, yeah. So, oh yeah, yeah with the worked. ribbon where it's like you're yes. not really tied but you're kind of exactly. tied exactly you're not really tied but you're kind of tied yeah, yeah that totally works there's yeah. a non-philosophical intimacy answer yeah yeah, yeah. the tying of the- <laughs> so just like imagine him just like pulling it so like, like, yeah, yeah I'm really it. grateful you led with the philosophical intimacy thing so that Isabeau couldn't hide behind it <laughs> <laughs> you know I was gonna say the epilogue when he gives her the instrument and <laughs> happiness is carved into the end <laughs> that is the shit I love yeah. I'm just such a cornball alright harder question what was the weirdest part Oh, here's the thing I really love mausoleums I like mm. the idea of them I think it's a great place to hide I think it's because I saw Franco Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet too young and like overly <laughs> identified with the romanticism of like dead bodies just like hanging out on shelves so when they're like we're gonna go to the mausoleum I was like holy shit what's about to go down and then it's like they just find out that he like was poisoned and like yeah. was just hanging out there and like decomposing for three days you felt like it was a boring death yeah <laughs> I like wanted him to be like decapitated right. but like that would have been too obvious but like something yeah. a little bit more intense than like I was poisoned by somebody I'd done wrong in my own mausoleum I get that I kind of felt like at the end though it was kind of like a last play for like another twist yeah like they before saying he was obviously poisoned they're like there were no injuries <laughs> he had clearly not self-inflicted the wound yeah and like yeah. he had food so he couldn't have starved to death but that would have been interesting where like he couldn't get out of his own mausoleum right. that would have been that's what I thought it was yeah. yeah like his family because they were under house arrest couldn't come and feed him and yeah so he right. like starved to death but no his servant just poisoned him yeah or maybe it was Lady Fang or maybe it was his wife yeah, yeah. we don't know Ooh. yeah they leave that nicely juicily open oh, they do I love Dang Farage she's a fierce mom Grand dom mm-hmm. right I mean that scene where she at the end there where she gives Ming Yu the money to basically buy her freedom it's scary it you're is like, you're like this bitch is gonna cut her if she opens her mouth oh, don't, yeah. drink <laughs> don't drink the tea don't drink the tea don't drink the tea get out of there run Ming Yu run yeah like don't spill the tea don't drink the don't, tea don't no, like... exactly don't spill it don't drink it just Mm-mm. go just go yeah like the idea that you could buy someone's silence with like their weight and gold was like that's fascinating I mean I wish someone would I mean, buy my silence oh yeah I might actually consider being quiet if they gave me that much money if um, you give us 20 grand on our Patreon I will stop talking but I'll also put on Lilith Fair 
Lilith Palooza. What about your weirdest oh, part? Oh, gosh. I was hoping you'd forget. Nope. <laughs> All right. I admit I had some pangs about the fact that he does torture her in the previous book. Mm. I mean, it's not a lot of torture. It's like minimal torture. Doesn't so like, like really... almost break her fingers? He, he keeps recurring. He, he like laces some bamboo sticks under her fingers and squeezes them. So there's no snapping. Just a little squeezing, which is how I'm rationalizing. But it's weird. It's uncomfortable. Yeah. Like the fact that he does momentarily have that power over her. Yeah. Even though she's overall more socially powerful than he is. In that moment, she is powerless. He holds all the cards and he is hurting her. And it doesn't matter that he secretly burns for her and that it happened off page if you're only reading this book. That weirds me out. It does. I'm conflicted about it. I will explain away a lot of crazy sauce, but when heroes actively hurt their heroines, it does bug me. Like, it's hard for me. And I get it. And here, I rationalized it. And I rationalized it being he's lower class and with a job and Mm -hmm. expected to do this thing. Obviously, when he gets the shit kicked out of him in this book, you realize that that's just how the police are. Yeah. They're all about the police brutality. It's kind of just what they do. But still, it's hard. It's hard for me to be like, he did hurt her. He scared the daylights out of her. He hurt her. And it doesn't matter that he's stopped. He does stop and he lets her go because he has heretofore unknown pants feelings for her. At yeah. That, at that point, he didn't really know why he let her go, but he still did it and that's still hard for me. And he's sorry about it later, but also not really. He never apologizes. It's it's more like it's in the past now for them. Yeah, it was a really weird acknowledgement scene where he's like, I did this to you. And she's There's like, yeah, you did. A line in the book where he says, and then he tried to force a confession out of her because it was his duty and dot, dot, dot. How dare anyone affect him so? And it's like, he has that reflection after recalling the first time he saw her. Yeah. And it's like, oh, so it wasn't just your job. Yeah, there was a creepy element there that you really haven't yeah. unpacked. And once again, using the apparatus of work is an expression of self. Yes. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Super that duper true. especially icky in this particular context. Oh. It's like, oh. oh. I mean, I forgave him a lot in this book, but I, that still does bug me, you know, even though I love them both and I love their journeys. I'm like, the fact that it did begin with him hurting her and it's just, yeah. Yeah. In the previous book. There you go. <laughs> yeah, that is weird. Morgan? I think the exposition in this text is so clean and streamlined that whenever it clunks, it's like really loud and hollow. There's one point where I highlighted it in my book and she gets the gift of this white jade bracelet Mm -hmm. from our villain. And it says, it's fitting that it was bright jade. That's what her name means. And I was like, and they totally get it because when you're writing, sometimes you're like, oh, this is going to be lost. I don't have enough clarity. And so I'm going to give the author the benefit of the doubt and say it's not that she doesn't trust her readers that she didn't trust herself to clarify it and to let it be a part of the book if people wanted to find it that I found like sometimes it was just like ugh. And I almost have to wonder if stuff like that is editorial notes. Yeah exactly. the the editor kind of goes I don't know if someone's going to understand what the significance is could you please explain this? Yeah Yeah. wherever it comes from. Romance readers are often touted as intelligent well educated people in the world but you've really got to write to them like that or else it'll kind of break the system that you're building and it certainly broke the book for me at times it felt very uncomfortable whenever the exposition got chunky like that yeah and again I think that's also as I said a function of writing a culture a lot of your readers aren't familiar with and your editors expecting you to like spoon feed I've gotten a lot of notes like that on my work over the years I mean I'm self-publishing right now but there are times where I was writing my Bollywood romances and other things that where I'd have expressly Indian details and I'd get these notes from like the copy editor to like explain things and I'd be like 
no no it's like if you want it you know you have this amazing thing called google and it's like if you don't like the book will work without it and like yeah you know i just but i think especially for a publisher like harlequin who tend to have very specific rules yeah and and formulas that like it might be harder to be able to push back and be like no i'm gonna keep i'm sure it is and i think like this is also like this is one of the intrusions of the idea that there's like a predominant reader culture yes 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 and like that's one of the moments where it's like when it is catered to a predominantly white yes. assumed readership right. it does feel weird and it feels unnatural in the yeah. book and that's really too bad because like romance is incredibly diverse and romance right. readers are incredibly diverse it's not like anyone ever demands you translate the French endearments the oh, you know, yes, it's so true or whatever. Or whatever. you never explain what ministrations means Oh, I don't know. It's in every fucking book. It was in this book. Yeah. I don't know. It's tender uh, ministration. Tender. Yeah. What is I always think about my pain. Nursing. Ooh, I, I always think of the ministry of magic. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like the things that we have to explain. Yeah. It's so weird. I, I still remember my copy editor telling me that Bombay was actually called Mumbai. And I literally, I was like, you know, people who live there call it what they've always called it. You can change the name on a map all you want. But like most of the people who've lived there in their entire lives are still going to call it whatever the hell they called it before. <laughs> like, well, even, actually. Well, actually. Oh, and I was like, thank no, you. Your, your opinion has been noted, white lady copy editor. <laughs> um, <laughs> if she's out there somewhere listening to this, I'm sorry. But it's like, you were really nice, except you did this one thing. It's not great. I've <laughs> taken it very much on board. <laughs> there's a lot of that kind of thing where, again, we're expected to adhere to your expectations of what our cultures are. And that does... Uh, ultimately I think throw a lot of readers out when you've created this world like Jeannie Lynn has mm-hmm. you can sense the outside yeah. you can sense the outsider intrusions so yes. I think intrusive is exactly the way it felt yep. and yeah it takes you out of the world and makes you notice the mechanisms happening right. in your book it's like Clippy the little Clippy thing showed up in the middle of your Microsoft <laughs> it Word is document. like Clippy showing up while you're reading it's like, like uh, did you know that made you men's bright jade Jesus fuck <laughs> you clippy <laughs> watch Jeannie's gonna be like actually I just did that myself <laughs> gonna be like Ben thought that was important I thought that was important the story actually it wasn't the editor or clippy sorry guys but again like you know writers aren't perfect things throw readers out it happens we're all just doing the best we can work man we're labor <laughs> right and again it goes back to women's work and women's labor and the expectations placed on us for perfection that's such a good point but also to like you know make everybody feel comfortable like all of the scenes where the idea that of course then it's not just about sex work right. it's about all of like the adjacent works mm-hmm. of making people feel comfortable mm-hmm. and like soothing egos and yep. like propping people up and like in some ways it's like when you have to overly explain a specific piece of like culture or a word that you wouldn't and otherwise in a western text like that's kind of that work too where it's like reader you're not done let me explain it to you lots of people don't know no. <laughs> <laughs> right. Karen but of course whenever we say writing for everyone we do mean writing for white people yes. yeah. to clarify we are <laughs> Where the default, and I. The default reader is white. And I, see, I'm trying to like keep my social justice diversity firebrand to a minute. So I'm like, good, let Isabel and Morgan talk about this. Like, I'll just sit here. Oh, 
I mean, if it's romance ourselves, and like that's the thing about this genre that I think like I'm always happy to hammer home. 37% of the mass market paperback, like we're talking about a huge chunk of publishing. We're talking about a huge readership that's incredibly loyal. And as we talked about, reread series and like word of mouth. It's Mm -hmm. like, it's clearly not just white women reading it. Yes. And like to pretend like it is or that it's like a fictional 57 year old who only buys her books at Walmart. I'm like, that's just not true. Agreed. And also maybe like has never been white 57 year old can figure it out. Yeah. Like you're kind of selling. I know like being catered to is convenient. Maybe you're selling your readership short there. Yes. If you're going to say this Connie, she can probably enjoy the book and understand the book without being like given this information. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know that we have to always know. I don't know that that impacts the overall read. Sometimes it's okay for you to not know something. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it's okay for you to not know something. Sometimes it's okay to let people not know something. Right. Yeah. And those who get it, get it. And those who don't, don't. I mean, yeah. There are times where I'll tweet something that's pretty much expressly for the Indians in my audience and then someone will always be like, what does this mean? I'll be like, well, it's for you. You will get it. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's not for you, white person. It's okay. And that's okay. And that's okay. You don't have to know everything. You don't have to be a part of it because no one expects the opposite. It's just assumed that people of color and people from different countries, you know, that we just have to adapt to majority culture. Like, no one worries if we get it or not. We're just expected to get it. Yeah. And then we're held to the opposite standard of having to cater to people who aren't like us. And it's so frustrating at times. Yeah. Yeah. But then there's also this phenomenon of white people being like, it's not for me. I'm going to check out. Mm. Like when Kendrick Lamar's To Pimp a Butterfly came out and everyone was like, it's one of the greatest albums of all time. Maybe it's not for you if you're white. And like, maybe you should just skip out on listening it and just leave Mm -hmm. it to the black culture of America. And it's like, well, no, that's not fair. (laughs) Right. That's really breaking it also. Oh, of course. Because like as a white person, you should suffer through connecting with something. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Like, please, actually, like if you really want to know, do the work. Yeah. That's the other thing. Like you can Google the references we made. Mm -hmm. So if you're so inclined, if you really care, you can listen to the Kendrick Lamar album. You know, you can expose yourself to these things, but you don't have the right to demand it be for you. Yeah. And like it is a privilege to be able to fall back on the millions of other things that have been prepared explicitly for you. And so you should definitely, when the opportunity arises, put yourself into a cultural moment that wasn't built for you. Yeah. I'm glad I got to rant about white reaction to Kendrick Lamar to Pimp a Butterfly. It's really good. (laughs) And it's like something that I've been thinking about over the last few days because like all of these abortion bans are sweeping. And so like this thing happened on Facebook where it's like join the auntie network. And I was like, and the auntie network. And I'm like, okay, they're white ladies. Ah, I know. And they're using, of course you can cut. Sorry. All right. Um, (laughs) This isn't PBS. (laughs) But like the fact that they're using the term, the auntie network to like make it safe for women from Georgia, Missouri, Alabama to like come North to have abortions. And like the auntie network is very specific to like, not this community. And like, it's strange to me that we've white women on Facebook have co-opted it to also then make oh a- is it strange that white women on Facebook have co-opted I mean, something I they think is cool <laughs> I also <laughs> saw the Underground Railroad 2019 yeah which I'm like again white women no 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 no, 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 no. Stop, it's no, like different no. and it's also then like these sit down Melody <laughs> You've got like Melody, Karen, Connie, the whole group of y'all. Stacy. It was so strange to watch it happen over 24 hours. And then it took 24 hours for someone to be like, first of all, the auntie network is not what you guys are doing. Second of all, these networks already exist. 
here are a list of organizations already performing this function that you didn't even bother to Google search. Right. Yeah. And I was like, oh. Such a great demonstration of white exceptionalism. That yes. White women had an idea and was like, guess what I just invented? <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag me too. <laughs> It's like, so true. <laughs> yeah. Much of me wants to be like, imagine feeling that way. It's like, well, I feel that way. I feel that way. And then I have to like tell myself not to. I get the updates from Pantsuit Nation. And then somebody on Pantsuit Nation Pantsuit was like. Pantsuit Nation is the worst place. It is the worst place. <laughs> the worst kinds of ideas aggregate there. And like there's the echo chamber is so loud before like one single very brave, you know, minority voice is like, hey, that's not correct. Also, stop being an asshole, please, yeah. please. And like, that's what happened. It took 24 hours for this to like even contemplate self-correction. Where it's like, what are aunties? You don't really <laughs> say it that way. I was going to say, white women don't have aunties. No, white women do not have aunties. <laughs> no, you don't. No. You all call your aunts by their actual name. Jana. Yeah. I have a Jana and a Judy and a Jane. Mary Jo. <laughs> right? Mary Jo and Jackie. I call my aunt by her name. I'll get slapped upside the head. We call In Bengali, you call it Juta Peta. She'll hit you with your shoe. With her shoe. <laughs> Latinas, I think, have chancletas. Yeah, we have the two. It's Juta Peta. Oh. You get beaten with a shoe. I mean, I've actually never been beaten with a shoe. Let me just say that. I'm being metaphorical. You want to talk about it? talk about it <laughs> I told you it could get into my inner psyche but I promise I have not but again like the respect culture of Andy is something that it's primarily people of color yeah. and, yeah. And, and and to co-opt a phrase like that a term like that discounts so much and it's just so presumptuous and it's, yeah oh. thousands of years and also then like language yeah. cultures and everything else it was insane to watch it frankly and it was like I was also impressed that it took 24 hours for someone to be like oh wait aunties I've heard this before like god damn it for those of you who are perhaps contemplating the idea of like, we're all human, we all have families, I encourage you to read some spillers uh, to get some theoretical background on why it's different for different people. That's a good wreck. That's yeah. a really good wreck. So with that and Pantsuit Nation and a white auntie network. Pantsuit Nation and a white auntie network are definitely a nomance for me. Oh, uh, super duper nomance. But I think it's a good segue to RWA. Oh, <laughs> yes, it is. Where do we want to start with that old see you on July 23rd <laughs> yeah Morgan and Isabel will be at RWA 2019 in NYC we would be happy to meet you in person and give you our hot takes over cold beverages <laughs> I will also be there although not at the actual conference I, awesome. I'm planning to be around maybe crash some parties bark on a little but I will not actually be physically at the sessions or anything like that okay. uh, but I look forward to seeing people <laughs> And hiding from people. Hiding from a lot of the white ladies, I think. <laughs> it's a good meetup. But I think, like, it's worth talking about the Ritas. Yeah. It's uh, worth talking about romance. And, like, what we're doing. Like, the fact that I've been a romance reader for 15 years. And it was only in 2019 that I heard about Jeannie Lynn. I'm like, mm -hmm. I feel really strange about that. Like, as a fairly, like, voracious reader, I was like, how the fuck did I miss you? <laughs> like, your catalog has been there. You know, it just speaks to the overall problem in the genre and how white voices and white readers are prioritized even in the marketing 
thing. You know, it just it depresses me. And I don't want to minimize the success of authors like Helen Wang and Jasmine Guillory in the mm-hmm. last couple of years. I'm so thrilled for them. But a lot of it acts like there were never black romance authors before that mm-hmm. or never Asian American authors before that. And that's just not the case. It's just that they didn't have the marketing. They didn't have the support from their publishers to like get them on the Today Show or get them on NPR or whatever. Also, does it matter that their covers are both cartoony rather than... Well, and I think that, again, speaks to marketing and marketing them towards a lot of the literati mm-hmm. who wouldn't be caught dead reading a clinch cover. Right. Yeah. And oh, but this is safe. It looks like chiclet. We can read this. I saw this woman reading On a Winter's Eve or whatever. Mm-hmm. Once Upon a Winter. Mm-hmm. What was, is that what it's the called? The Tessa Dare story? No, no, no. It's the one with the it's like double-decker a- bus. It's got that cartoony cover. Oh, gotcha. Okay. And I was reading my like very out in the open like flowers from the store. Oh, nice. Nice. Nothing. And I was like, you and me are the same. But she would probably like never acknowledge no. that what we were doing was the same no. thing on the She would probably not consider it romance no. novel. So that's part of it, I think, uh, in terms of like the marketing push not being there for black romance authors, especially, mm-hmm. you know, the industry support, the acknowledgement mm-hmm. that their work is important and has, deserves recognition. Not a single black romance author has won a Rita. And that is utter bullshit. Like, that's crazy. And like, I remember being at RWA last year and like somebody said that and I was like, what the fuck? Bev Jenkins just got like this huge scholarship from Avon named after her. I went to her speech and she's like, I mean, this is great. And like, don't get me wrong. I cried when they told me, but like, guess who hasn't won a Rita? And I was like, shit. They they basically, they gave her a lifetime achievement award, which she deserves. Yeah. That is, that is her Rita. It is is the lifetime achievement award Rita. And I will say, you know, Miss Bev does not enter. And the reason she does not enter is because she knows it's a stacked deck. Totally. And why bother? Why bother entering our books if no one's going to consider them on the same playing field? And we're seeing that more and more clearly um, because it was a huge backlash last year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so we thought, okay, people told us, authors of color, you know, enter, sign up to judge. So we did. Mm -hmm. We did in huge numbers last year to judge and enter this particular bout of the Rita's. End result, even whiter than before. So why did we bother? You know, and people will tell us, well, if you don't, then it'll be the same. I'm like, but we did and it's the same. Yeah. So we're not the problem. Yeah. We are not the problem. It's a systemic issue. It doesn't have to do with like individuals not putting themselves out there and bootstrapping or whatever. Right? I'm like, how much can we bootstrap if you're all racist? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) How can we bootstrap if you're all racist? Can't bootstrap. It's almost like bootstraps are a lie. Right? How you made up? Right? I just want to say also that, I mean, this is everything I believe and would absolutely say on Twitter, but I've also had three mimosas. (laughs) Which just means you're all the more honest. I mean, like, you have to acknowledge at that point it's systemic. Like, there's no other explanation. Like, congratulations, process of elimination, yourselves, you're a racist system. Right. And and there are people who are still trying to argue that we could fix this or it's the people of color's fault for not, you know, or whatever. And we've actually had people in RWA on the board be like, no, no, no. We've already established that, that y'all are racist. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's not the problem. Yeah. The, the, the contest is flawed. There's a problem in the voting membership. That is not the issue. That's not for debate. So I will give the current board 
on the board for the past couple of years, props, because they're trying. Mm-hmm. You know, there are a lot of women of color on the board. They are desperately trying to overturn decades of mechanisms in place to keep the white default and the white mediocrity winning. And it's not easy. The RWA's membership is what, like 10,000 members? Mm-hmm. And it's a lot, a lot of white ladies. Mm-hmm. A lot of white ladies who've never been questioned, never been pushed, never asked to interrogate their own biases. I mean, we have like checkboxes on the Rita forms now where you can recuse yourself or if you can't finish the book or it does kind of ask if there are problematic aspects in the book. Again, you can mark that as like a DNF or Mm -hmm. something. But again, you're asking people who maybe have never interrogated what problematic is. Right. Right. That's why we see a blogger, um, Jen Reads Romance. She's Mm -hmm. out there and she's been reading every single Rita finalist Mm -hmm. and most of them have huge problems. I'd venture to say it's because a lot of these people judging have never actually had to sit there and question what's problematic. Yeah. There's stuff that has just flown by them because it's never occurred to them to flag something. Mm -hmm. You know, like jokes about orphans in Africa and dysentery and, you know, whatever. Like, God, that's just one example of one of the finalist books because these are women who have never had to question question why that might be wrong so they don't and then the books get through right so even if you put that tick box on the form you can't make women like that check that box Mm because they're not going to understand that something is wrong with this book they've never had to question it so before anyone Mm -hmm. proposes like mass education of these women Uh i'm gonna say burn down the system yeah yeah and start over that sounds great because you've like at this point in the world like we've got 70 years on the planet left we've got 70 years <laughs> left that. to do the right thing I don't think you're being that, that ambitious <laughs> <laughs> if that and like you're gonna like waste your time on like well we don't want to make people feel uncomfortable or unvalued it's like, like this is not time for incrementalism also right, exactly. we tried that before and like look what happened oh yeah. Rita's so it's, it's just time to burn down the system I'm not opposed it's like I think Rita's ready for like a fucking revolution yeah, yeah at least the voters yeah start over. I mean, it's almost as simple as reversing the process because what it is is first round is everybody mm-hmm. judging everything. The mm-hmm. finalists are a small committee. I would reverse it and number one, have a rolling admissions policy so they're not getting inundated. Like you can submit every six weeks or something or four yeah. times, four times a year, you know, so you're not getting inundated with, but have the committee whittle and then the overall membership vote. That's smart. Yeah. And you have a committee who is, you know, our past winners, librarians, definitely have an equal number of people of color and, and queer members and, and make it sure that committee is intersectional. Yep. I think I used intersectional wrong, but again, through mimosas, you know, and have them whittle and then have everyone vote. So you still have that quote unquote democratic thing going on, but things aren't being overlooked and people who actually have a critical eye for basic craft. Because a lot of times, a lot of this racist stuff that gets through is also just a poor craft issue. Let's face it. Like a lot of it's just shitty writing. It's not just racism, it's shitty writing. Yeah. So like you need people who can identify shitty writing and, and be like, separate your id from this. Your id says, wee, this book is great, but like, Technically, it's a piece of crap. Do a basic <laughs> plagiarism test. Oh, yes, oh please. Yes, please. I mean, yes, we're talking please. about a low hurdle here. It is a really low <laughs> bar for someone stealing from, like, A, Tessa Derek, Courtney Milan, but also, like, the not. Oh, and it was a really good not article. <laughs> it was a really good not <laughs> article. Really so we worked fun, hard it on it. Read. Who the hell plagiarizes Nora Roberts? Do you not know how well that did not go for Janet Daly? <laughs> yeah, dude. <laughs> Jesus, do your research. What are you doing? Like, again, there needs to be a lot of oversight and people who, who can give a critical eye to these texts. And then sure, once you've whittled it to like a, a slate, then have, you know, everyone can vote with their it all they want. Yeah. You know, that's fine. But we need like some oversight beforehand. I think that's smart. It's a really good idea. Yeah. It's also not a hard fix. Yeah. I guess that's a little bit more thoughtful than mine. Which 
burn it. Just be like, no awards for anyone. (laughs) Set it all on fire. (laughs) Screw all of you. No, I I mean, I like fires. It's like, I mean, I do like fires, you know, and like that Sunny Came Home song. (laughs) (laughs) List of names. I had my own list. She had a list of names before Arya Stark. I'm just saying. Um, she came home with a mission. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Sunny is the original Arya. Sunny came home with a vengeance, y'all. She did. Oh my god, you guys, this was so good. This was so good. Thank you both for having me on. Oh my god, oh, it was like a supreme pleasure. Yeah. Thank you so much. Oh man. Okay. So, what books of yours can people purchase at their local uh, Amazon? You can find um, the Cleus Press anthologies edited by Rachel Kramer Bustle at a lot of Barnes and Nobles. So, I'm in a, a few of those. Like. The Big Book of Orgasms, which is a great name. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sweet Encounter. Sweet Encounters? Yes, Hotel Sex. That's one of my first places that I submitted. The Best Woman's Erotica, Volume 4. So those oh, are all in okay. physical bookstores. But then my own work is self-published and on all the e-platforms. And I've got the Bollywood Romance Trilogy, which is Spice and Smoke, which is bananas. And I actually don't want people to read it, but it's out there anyway. <laughs> Spice and Secrets and Bollywood and the Beast. And then Chance on Me, which a lot of people love. And I'm going to be nice to myself and say that I know why people love it, because it's it's awesome. <laughs> and uh, and I have an upcoming trilogy coming out in 2021 with Sourcebooks, which is Paranormal Romantic Suspense, and it's super social justice Danger boning. <laughs> it's the only kind of boning there should be. Right. <laughs> That's the sound of danger boning. Danger boning. <laughs> There's like, like, like a klaxon. <laughs> That's right. So The Jade Temptress by Jeannie Lynn. Is it a womance or a no-mance? I mean, I'm assuming it's a womance. It's a womance. womance. I'm reserved. One clicked the first one. Definitely going to go back for the others. I'm going to read Jeannie Lynn's entire catalog. I'm so glad that you brought her to our attention. I'm so glad I did too. (laughs) Yeah, just delight. This is a delight. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you you so much. for this amazing book. Thank you, Morgan and Isabel. It's great to be here to talk about a book I love so much and an author that I stand so hard. (laughs) Jeannie, please don't take out a restraining order. Uh, Jeannie, we love you, but not in a bad way. Jeannie, we love you. We're right outside your door. (laughs) (laughs) And with that, losing your days. But never your principles. Indeed. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. All editing and music is done by Nick Gravelin. Our logo is by Mary Reichman. And our webmistress is Jane Bonzak. They're the best. Feeling woeful about having to wait a whole week for more Womance? Well, cheer up, Buttercup. You can creep or connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, or our website. Our webpage is womancepod.com. If you prefer to be more verbose and or direct, why not send us an email? We're womancemail at gmail.com, and we can't wait to hear from you. In the meantime, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast listening app. Until next week. <laughs>